Welcome to What the If. Philip here. E. Real quick, just a note about today's very special, super awesome episode. We were invited by Dr. Kiki onto her show, uh, This Week in Science, the long running podcast science news program where Kiki and Blair and Justin review the science stories of the week and uh, have a lot of fun with them. Kiki was on our show. She asked us uh, to join her, and we do a very special sort of combination. It's a combo. It's like the number two meal, maybe number one meal. It's the number one meal at McDonald's. And that is you get an hour of This Week in Science. Matt and I joining Kiki Blair and Justin, getting to know the news. Part two of the combo is What the If, with special guests, Kiki, Blair, and Justin, three special guests. We've never done it before. It's a five-person if. I've broken this into two parts. Part one is the news. All all these stories are like crazy this week. One of them, (laughs) just slightly more crazy than the next, becomes the source of the if we do in part two. Enjoy. I've got the kind of mind that can't get enough. I want to learn everything. I want to fill it all up with new discoveries that happen every day of the week. There's only one place to go to find the knowledge I seek. I want to know what's happening. What's happening? What's happening this week in science? What's happening? What's happening? What's happening this week in science? Good science to you, Kiki and Blair. And a good science to you too, Justin, Blair, and everyone out there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Science back again. But this is not just any old episode of This Week in Science. This is a very special episode of This Week in Science. So hold on to your science tinfoil hats, everyone, because this week we are joined by the hosts of the What the If podcast. Welcome to the show, Philip Shane and Matt Stanley. Thanks for joining us. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes. So this glad is to surreal to me because I'm always watching this, albeit delayed, uh, <laughs> but because it's very late here in, in, in the East Coast. But to see my face, I don't know. It's like, what? Somehow I. It's like fan fiction. You've inserted yourself. Yeah. Into this podcast. <laughs> exactly. exactly. We love to make the sciencey dreams come true. Oh, yes. This is, so, is going to be so much fun. I'm excited. So what we're doing tonight, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to have our normal science over the week, but we're also going to be ifing it up a little bit. Um, Could one of you tell me a little bit about who you are and what your podcast is all about? Philip Shane is a documentary (laughs) filmmaker. Uh, I am a historian of science. I teach at NYU. Um, And our shtick is uh, we, we take reality and we change something and then we run with it and see where that takes us. Uh, So sometimes we'll, turn off gravity or say what had happened if Isaac Newton had never lived. Um, And then we run with it until usually we destroy the universe. Yeah. (laughs) So tonight on the show, we are not just talking about the science. We are going to talk about the science. The twist team, we're going to bring our normal stories. We've got a few stories for you to open up the show. But then we're going to play the if game. And I guess we're going to destroy the universe. So (laughs) are we ready for that? Is everyone ready? (laughs) You've heard of uh, dark energy. We're if energy. You've heard of black holes where if holes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a late night show, right? At least That's over late here. Late <laughs> night. <laughs> if it. It's right. safe harbor somewhere. Safe harbor. <laughs> As we jump into the show, everyone, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to the Twist podcast and also the What the If podcast all the places that great podcasts are found. You can also look for more twist goodness by visiting twist.org. Okay, let's jump into some science. This last week, some huge news came out in the 
the what are we doing with science world? We've talked about chimeras before on the show. But this last week, July 31st, a Spanish new newspaper called El País reported that a, a team, an international team of Spanish researchers and also American researchers had taken to China to do experiments in China because they aren't allowed because of restrictions here in the United States. The lead researchers, Juan Carlos, is Ispisua Belmonte of the Salk Institute in San Diego. And we've talked about his research before. Back in 2017, he and some other researchers had published work where they had put human cells into pigs and cows to see if we could create human pig livers, human pig hearts, to see if what we could get to, I guess, to survive in these chimeric organisms. The way that the, the science works is an embryo is of, say, a pig or a cow, any animal is taken, little baby, the embryo with all the basic cells, the blastocyst, some cells are removed and some human cells are put in. If you're early enough in that division process of differentiation, then nothing's really decided what it's going to be yet. It is just a ball of cells. And so those human cells could end up anywhere in the body. If you wait till later in differentiation, you can potentially specify where those cells will end up, like a particular organ. They did this, they, you, then you take that embryonic ball of cells and you put it into a surrogate parent in which the pregnancy goes to term to see how far it can go. They were able to get pig, pigs, cows to hold human cells to become chimeric, but it didn't work really well. And so they wanted to do something more closely related to humans, primates are really closely related to humans. And the next step was to do human monkey chimeras. However, like I said, this kind of research is restricted in the United States. It is not allowed. A lot of people are worried what would happen if a monkey got human cells in its brain. What would that mean? What would end up happening? There's a lot of, a lot of ethical issues that need to be worked out there. And the researchers wanting to move ahead decided they'd go to China. And it's been reported that they have successfully gotten human monkey chimeric embryos that they've allowed to survive to the one or two week stage. This research has not yet been published. So this is just this kind of word of mouth report reporting on this. A paper will probably be out soon. So nobody's really talking about it. They're all pretty tight lipped. But we just know that it's happened. <laughs> There's a lot of... Yeah, chimera... <laughs> What a chimera! I have some vision of like an old, like there was a chess game, like kind of like on the Millennium Falcon. There were animals, and it was the chimera. It's like the head of one thing and the body of another. Is that where they get that term? Right. So that's where the what's where the term comes from. Where it's this mixture of animals, mixture of organisms. Uh, but in te in the in the in the idealized world that we could create a chimeric organism that has human cells in very specific locations like the pancreas is all human and so we have a bunch of pigs growing human pancreases that can then be transplanted into humans when they're needed because we have a transplant we have we have an organ shortage when it comes to organ transplants so if we could this, grow them yeah this immediately leads me, me to have this idea of this book now I want to write about uh, uh, lab monkey chimeras to, uh, getting free and then sort of uh, surviving past the nuclear apocalypse. And then and then the there's a, a, in the future, uh, there's these monkeys who have uh, rebuilt society. Uh, oh, no, that's already a thing. No, no, no. They did. What, I, there was one. I think but it was a, it was apes. Which is right, planet this of the time they'll have tails. That's right. It'll be yeah. planet this of the monkey. Have tails. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is totally different. I'm running off to protect the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> so all I know is that it turns out bad for the Statue of Liberty. So, Dr. Kiki, did I understand right from your explanation that it doesn't matter what kind of what kind of human cells we put in? What's important is where they get put in into the blastocyst. 
Right. So it's it's a it's double. So we're putting a very early stage, uh, basically pluripotent stem cells. Oh, these, okay. these very early stage human cells that still have the ability to, to turn into anything. If you're putting them in to a very early embryo, then you want them to match the timing. Of that, of that embryonic stage for developmental purposes. But then they can go on and kind of become anything. The other side of it is if you wait a little longer and you're putting them into a specific location, you want the cells to again kind of match the the differentiation pathway. So you want cells that are potentially on their way to already becoming a liver and not something mm. else. Because if you put them in a particular location, you're going to, are you going to end up with, I don't know, you know, a, a heart where the liver should be? Will, will the body plan yeah. get messed up? Will the embryo be, uh, n will that end up unviable if it's not, if it, the timing isn't correct? Interesting. Well, in, in keeping with um, the disclaimer this week, I don't want to be xenophobic and simply afraid of these things because the images are disturbing. Uh, is it, possible that we could come to a time where it's not really we don't have to think of uh differences in species it's just you know we can all be mixed up it's just it's just genes genes yeah yeah it's just genes and so that brings me kind of to the next study one of our favorite organisms the tardigrade has all these amazing genes for survival. It has genes that allow it to withstand uh, radiation from space. It has genes that allow it to survive in uh, very cold environments, very hot environments. It is uh, one of the, it's a very long-lived organism, very hardy. They don't die. Their genomes fix themselves very readily when it comes to damage. And so the tardigrades, we're interested in how they fix themselves. Because if we could learn how the genes and the tardigrades work, they could teach us a lot about how to fix our own cancers. Could we take some tardigrade genes and potentially just swap them in? Use CRISPR gene editing, you know, make some little alterations. Isn't it just all genetic information there? So so this is... So tardigrades, why, why do they have... Why are they... Uh, why do they have built-in protection against radiation because they're aliens it's considered a silly thing to talk about but I, I secretly not so secretly believe that they are in fact aliens yeah, yeah. But, but part of it i would imagine has to do with the fact that they they are you know they're also named water bears they like to live in water and and they lichen like water. and one thing that lichen does is it can be you know up on shore for a while and it can get totally completely dried out and then it'll get wet again later and it's sort of a seasonal thing though so being able to be completely dehydrated and then exposed to the sun for, for what like a hundred years or something <laughs> yeah it's like an insane amount of time they were in they were in a ton state or in this this shriveled up state for like a hundred years and then they were reanimated but, but to survive in that yeah. state just normal radiation without being able to do dna repair that a living thing would normally be you would assume be doing uh it, it just you would have to have that uh component to exist to even mm -hmm. be on the planet so or to be on the moon so <gasps> yes the yeah. tardigrades in this story uh were taken to the moon by an israeli company that was going to put a lander <laughs> on the moon sure do you know what happened to that lander did it explode? It kind of landed roughly. It crashed it into the moon. And it, so, did a, it did an autopilot landing, I guess, or an unpiloted landing, I guess. It, is, is what it, was, right? Right. it boofed. It did. Mm -hmm. And it potentially boofed all of its contents onto the surface of the moon. The contents which consisted of some tardigrades. Oh. The researchers oh who were involved in this potential experiment of putting the tardigrades on the moon, because they wanted to know how the tardigrades would be able to withstand the radiative cold environment of the moon. They had a plan for what they were going to study there, except it was sped up. The tardigrades may have been completely exposed very rapidly to the lunar environment, which as hardy as they are, it may have been hard for them to have survived the crash. 
But if the crash and their exposure was at a slow enough pace, they could have gotten into their ton state and gone dormant. And if they're dormant on the moon, they could exist on the surface of the moon for who knows how long. So the Israeli lander site is now uh, one of some very, uh, a lot of curiosity, actually, to find out what happened to those tardigrades. So you're Most telling us that some possibly indestructible, possibly alien life forms have escaped <laughs> the planet? They're kosher. Yes. It's okay. They're kosher. <laughs> yes. Yep. Pos- right. I mean, if, if we're talking about panspermia, we, <laughs> we how it starts. starts. This is reverse panspermia. We yeah. caused it in this mm-hmm. instance. And they, so they you, are could, also, you could also have this thing in a ton state on the moon, and then you could have like a a, a teeny tiny little comet or something hit there right. that had some ice on it, and then it melts, and then they open Start up, again. and then there's the whole thing on the moon. But I'm guessing they were in were were they in the um, tin state, the in uh, you know the frozen state basically. I would assume they were on this uh, while on the satellite. No, apparently they were not in mm. the ton state mm. going on the satellite. Apparently they were in uh, a moist environment that would have allowed them to stay in their lively water bear state. That is a rude awakening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. So it could have been flash frozen water bears or huh? <laughs> or they they could have survived. But we don't What know. about the, the vacuum is not a problem for them then? No, no. if yeah, it's amazing in the vacuum of space. Right, that's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Vacuum aliens, I'm, I'm not, telling you. <laughs> and I'm not sure they're kosher. One of their nicknames is Moss Pig. Oh, well, oh, I'm not right. sure if that is <laughs> That explains why there was no milk on the... Uh, uh, but now, uh, but yeah. now, now we have to figure out, like, what is the... How many millennia before there's the rise of the tardigrades on the moon? That's right, and they come back to invade us, right? <laughs> yeah, except they got the scale completely wrong, right? Because they're still really teeny tiny. And so. yeah. But still, but scientifically, this is, like, incredible. Yeah. Right. So, so we have to. Are, are they gonna? Is somebody sending another craft to go land there and see what happens? To go people. scrape. People. Will, yeah. People will have time. to go there. I mean, this is going to be something that will probably be in the plans to get yeah. there at some point. I don't know about future Israeli plans. They do want to go back. Yeah. Uh, and they showed they could get there, and it was just a small error that. Uh, ended up having them crash. So I hope they go back and check the site. But if not, it's up for up for investigation by anyone who gets people to the moon to look Elon, at it. Elon, Elon. Um, yeah, get there. But th- this is a good reminder of the pl- the reason for planetary protection yep. uh, plan, uh, what it, policies. Because mm-hmm. if that was Mars, I mean... Yeah. They, now, since it's the did, moon, yeah. Right. Since it's the moon, we think, oh, it's dead. We don't really have to worry about it. There's probably right. nothing there. It doesn't have an atmosphere. It's, you know, it's cold. It's icy. Whatever. Right. Mars, we're looking for life there. Yeah. 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 Also, another exactly. thing, alien-wise, like it is kind of amazing to think that they're, you know, we crashed a ship that had living things on it. There's no reason why aliens might not have crashed. Somewhere, I yeah. mean, not, not Roswell, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Area Fifty One. But not like these little run there, <laughs> right, right. Like, like they're you know, if our space station crashed, there's all kinds of biological things on it. Not to mention the the people, but uh, the food and and then all the ex- experiments they have, the lettuce, things like that. Right. I do. I do wonder about Kevin Unique in the chat room. Just brought up too late about Mars. We've already visited there, and that is. True. So that we know that there are microbes that uh, manage to survive in our supposedly clean rooms at NASA. Mm. We know that there are microbes that can su- survive radiation and exposure to cold in space. We just don't know if they went and if they lived on the exterior of our craft and made it through the landing process of course they did of course without being burned off in <laughs> of the process course they did. i it's mean is, does mars yes. have one of those really big burn off atmospheres uh, the moon it's certainly bit, does but, it's a bit but it's uh, you not, know I mean, it has enough of an atmosphere for us to use a parachute right 
there's one percent. One percent. There's of a our, heat. There's a heat shield. It's one percent of our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that's not going to be a big deal. That's not a big fight. No. And if you're in somewhere on the you're in the interior, and it's going to be an extremophile of some form because it survived all the sanitation efforts. Oh, great! So uh, it's fundamentalist. Uh, Great. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be a survivor. Yeah, this is gonna be a Jeff Goldblum life will find a way kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. It's also gonna be very yeah. mad. I mean life will survive. Yeah. Okay, let's move on forward. And it's gonna have no competition. And that's yeah, I mean that's, that's the thing we forget. It's gonna yeah. be now in an environment. But competition is what drives so much of the diversification. But they're gonna have to eat each other. They'll have a niche with no uh with no predator. Yeah. Uh, and How so they boring. can diversify into those niches too. Yeah. Uh, if there's something, there's, there's resources everywhere that yeah. aren't being taken advantage of, there can be evolution into them. Okay, well, let's okay, keep I'm moving. Talking. I finished my stories. These are great conversations to have. Justin, let's run through your stories. Okay, let's run through them real quick. Uh, okay, if you are a young man in the United States, there is something you need to be aware of. There's a danger so great that it has become a leading cause of death for men 20 to 35. Uh, right behind drug overdoses, uh, car accidents, suicide, homicide, heart disease, cancer. Top cause of death, 20 to 20, uh, 35, behind all those, police violence. Who knew? Well, if you are black in America, you might. Uh, if you're black in America, you have two and a half times more likely chances of being uh, killed by law enforcement than if you're a white person of the similar age. One in a thousand black men will die by police violence in their lifetime, according to this study, uh, which is published in PNAS and examined fatality risks during police encounters. One of the interesting things uh, about this study is that it was this is journalism based. This is not from records kept by uh, police departments, because apparently those papers do not exist in any great detail or with much continuity across the nation. So they pulled this from uh, reportings on police shootings across the nation between 2013 and 2017. Uh, it was they had a total of 11,456 uh, death by police in those four years. Uh, some of the interesting things here too, women, Men generally have a one in 2,000 chance of being murdered by police in their lifetime. One in 2,500 uh, if you happen to be a white man. Uh, if you happen to be a woman, uh, women, it's one in 33,000. So there's a, there's a massive increase in the chances of being killed by a police, uh, by a police if you're a man than a woman. Uh, of women... Uh, Native American, uh, Native American women were one and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white women. Latino men and Native American men one and a half times more likely to be killed than white people by police. Uh, something interesting: La- Latina women, as is defined here, twenty percent less likely to be killed by police than white women, for whatever reason is there. Uh, black women, uh, one and a half time 1.4 times more likely than white women uh, to be uh, killed at the hands of police. What, what's uh, sort of interesting, they go a little bit into the Bureau of Justice uh, statistics needs to develop a more comprehensive system to track police, police related deaths is basically what they're seeing is a increase by as much as 50% uh, since 2008 in overall death by police in our nation. So there is a problem. There is a definite racial component to it that is uh, obvious and standing out. But there's also just a why are so many of us getting killed by police? This is this is a uh, and I obviously I would probably say that this might lead to looking at the militarization of our police uh, and, and their trainings as a nation. But Definitely something that needs better research and to be looked into uh, because it's climbing the charts for causes of death of young men in this country. Uh, moving on, dark matter. Well, I was, invisible- was going to say before you f- move oh. forward with oh. this, I think that oh. another point here is that it's it's the best thing is that there are people doing studies on this, that people are looking at data because it's always a question of, are we just seeing more of this on social media? Are we just seeing more of this uh, because of whatever 
modern factors or, you know, what is actually happening. And so it is nice to see some scientific rigor put toward this question of of whether or not uh, police force is resulting in more deaths for some segments of the population. And uh, yeah, this is something that needs more work and it needs a big old spotlight put on it. So it's something that people can, uh, that more people become aware of. So we know it's a problem and it becomes investigated more. And I think there's, there's all another lens to use when looking at this, which is that the, there's increased death at the hands of police in these different subsections. Mm-hmm. Is that specific to is that expectation or the reason that that's happening specific to the police force or is that society as a whole or is that another larger group of people that police are a part of so it it could be that the police force in general has a greater expectation for violence from certain communities or it could be people in general have that expectation or that males in general have that expectation or that white people in general have that. So there's Mm -hmm. all these different potential um, kind of Venn diagrams of what we're looking at. And depending on which one of those things is actually the real true correlation, there's different ways to attack that problem. Yeah. The problem of, yeah, the question of why is this happening? I mean, Mm -hmm. but now there's a bit of evidence saying, yes, indeed, the people who are saying brown people are getting killed more often, mm-hmm. they're right. It's happening. And so let's move and forward. The and the police, it, or is it the it. way that we teach it, people is, from a very young age how to treat other yeah. people? Where mm-hmm. is this Where is happening? coming from? I, w- yeah. I would say, I would, <clears throat> I mean, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I would guess that it's the training, that uh, the training is supposed to account for all kinds of human emotions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that there is a uh, weakness in the training, uh, a lack of uh, seriousness in taking into account these that these things are happening. And maybe the fact that the statistics are coming out more often is helpful. The fact that the community is aware of these things and so will fight you know, will 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 protest um, is also very helpful. But you know, the the uh, um, the training can make this work, but uh, it's uh, it requires an right. The, the 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 fact that the police feel in danger, and so they just this seems to happen all the time. So the police felt in danger. It wasn't, I'm going to say some of, you know, look, there's some race, some really overtly horrible racist things. Like we see that in New York for sure. Um, occasionally, but I think other times they're scared and and they're shooting. And then the fact that they can, uh, they're not, uh, tried for that or convicted, you know, anything, um, I think is probably because they're saying the training, was weak, but that's a huge problem. That because that fact that the training is not a person mm-hmm. makes this very hard to uh, change. You know, so, yeah. so just, if you know if you know they're taking those prejudices into the training at the beginning, right? If they if they're carrying that with them into the training, that's attacked very different than if um, it's just it's that's it's a problem the within training. the training. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so, like yeah. in the arm in the military they take a lot of it now certainly terrible things happen in the military as well but like it's all about fighting the emotions you have paul you know you have uh whatever a method of doing things and if you violate that method you are in trouble then they really can say you did that wrong you know yeah Yeah. so so in the last 60 years the city of los angeles has burned twice because of the issue of rate rate uh racial justice at the hands of police specifically in relation to the police uh, was very specifically behind both of those. And, and one thing that's happened since the advent of everybody having this, 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 uh, this video uh, camera uh, in their, in their hand everywhere. We, we haven't seen uh, more clear evidence of the UFOs, the ghosts, the Bigfoots, but guess what? Uh, Police violence uh, against people of color has definitely shown up on our screens over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, this study, along with what we've been seeing, you know, it's not that we're just seeing it more often because there's video now or that it's happening more often. 
it's not happening more often. It's been going on for a it's very long time. It's been going on. Yeah. It just be, we're becoming it's happening a lot. And, yeah. uh, in, the, in the white people world. That's all. That's what's yeah. I, d- I did like how you said, um, th- whatever the last statistic you mentioned, you said this many of us are being killed. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. It is yeah, this many of us. It's not of us. The, yeah. this, not them and them. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, the you know the idea that crime is is actually been going down over the years, and yet uh, you know police violence on people is going up. It's there's going up. there's a yeah, there's something going on in that. Court. All right, now let's move on to your okay. Dark now to, story. Now just something uh, much lighter. Dark matter, invisible, gravitationally active mystery matter. It's making up some eighty percent ish of our universe's mass. Uh, it might be a lot older than anybody thought possible. This is John Hopkins University study published in Physical Review Letters. They're presenting an idea of how dark matter might have been born and how to identify it. This is uh, Tommy Tincannon, postdoc in physics and astronomy at John Hopkins University and the study's author. The study revealed, this is quoting voice, study revealed a new connection between particle physics and astronomy. If dark matter consists of new particles that were born before the Big Bang, they affect the way galaxies are distributed in the sky in a unique way. This connection may be used to reveal their identity and make conclusions about times before the Big Bang as well. So not a lot is known currently about the the, it, the origins of dark matter, but uh, it does play a crucial role in the physics of the formation of galaxies and clustering of galaxies. Not directly observable, uh, but this is this is one of the things in the state. So for a long time, they, it has been theorized that dark matter is a leftover substance from the Big Bang, that this was an affect of the Big Bang, that it left over this dark mattery residue. And so researchers have been looking for this version of dark matter, but so far experimental searches have come up with zilch, zero, nada, and a healthy slice of bupkis. So quoting again, uh, Tim Cannon, if dark matter were truly a remnant of the Big Bang, then in many cases, researchers should have seen a direct signal of dark matter in different particle physics experiments already. And using a new, and by the author's definition, simple, mathematical framework. I doubt it's that simple. I doubt it's that simple. The study shows that dark matter may have been produced before the Big Bang during an era known as the cosmic inflation when space is expanding very rapidly, which I have to pause it right here. I thought thought that was after. After. I thought that was after the Big Bang. And they're saying like the cosmic expansion, like the Big Bang happened like after that? What was the source? What what, um, what magazine is this? Is, is so this was published in Physical Review Letters. Yeah, uh, right. yeah. It sounds like perhaps one of the reporters along the line um, got something confused. Some but words. they are. They have said over and over again in this. Uh, yeah, before the Big Bang, this is not a. So yeah, yeah rapid expansion is believed to lead to copious production of certain types of particles called scalars. So far, only one scalar particle has been. Uh, discovered. This is the, of course, Higgs boson. And quoting voice again, we do not know what dark matter is, but if it has anything to do with the scalar particles, it may be older than the Big Bang. With the That's proposed cool. mathematical scenario, we don't have to assume new types of interactions between visible and dark matter beyond gravity, which we already know is there. So a new study shows researchers have overlooked a simple, again, by their definition, mathematical scenario for the origin of dark matter. And the study also suggests that they may have, there may be a signature on the distribution of matter in the universe that can, uh, that can be somewhat predicted and therefore telegraph what dark matter is. Uh, last quoting voice, while this type of dark matter is too elusive to be found in particle experiments, it can reveal its presence in astronomical observations. We will soon learn more about the origin of dark matter when the Euclid satellite is launched in 2012. It's going to be very exciting to see what it will reveal about dark 20, matter. 2012. Or 20, sorry, 2022. Yeah. I, I don't know that kind of time. <laughs> 2022. No, no, no. It's just right around the corner. Right. Uh, and, it's, uh, and its findings can be used to peek into the times perhaps before the Big Bang. Hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah. 
I mean, <laughs> we want it. We, some of the ideas are that the universe is like a yo-yo that kind of that goes out and then it crashes back down and then it expands out and it crunches mm-hmm. back down. And if it is mm-hmm. a yo-yo like that, then there should potentially be some kind of trace that ties it all together. So we could, if the math, the physics, the language of the universe works out, be able to find that thread now that would connect us to that pre-Big Bang epoch. And I don't know that this requires a yo-yo universe in order Not necessarily, for it to operate, but, but yeah, um, that's one idea. Yeah. The, the strange thing is if, I mean, there's something clearly confusing here, which is the, the this whole before the Big Bang thing, because uh, everything that came out of the Big Bang is everything we have. So theoretically, everything that's here is also from before the Big Bang, maybe. Right. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's it. I mean, it's, it's like, I just feel like I got the wrong info at first, but you know, the, the expansion of space and the scalar particles being part of this uh, formed or effect, affected there. And then the big bang takes place. Unless what they're that talking about, there's not how I learned it. There's whatever the bang, the, the little bang, right, right. Then, the little, bang, little bit of inflation, and then the big bang, which is massive inflation. <laughs> so maybe right. looking at how yeah. it, how it inflated. There's some time marker. They're not. Yeah, right, yeah. And I should say, big bang is actually not a technical term, right? No. That's a a loose term used to describe a whole category of theories and possible events. Um, so it may be that we're just talking about different time scales in the very early universe. I would hate to think that the before the Big Bang thing was used to get publicity. Impossible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like, yeah, right? I mean, it's... Um, it sounds like a possibility. <laughs> One possibility. Yeah, but you know what? People got a lot of publicity out of there was nothing before. So, you know, it's just, it's just, it took a while to get it's publicity time. the other way. Right. <laughs> fair, you, what do they call that? Fair time. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's come out of this conundrum of time and space and spend a couple of minutes with our favorite Blair's Animal Corner. <gasps> it's Blair. She loves small creatures, great and small. Biped, milliped, no red animal. If you want to hear about animals, she's your friend. Except for giant animals. What you got? Oh my goodness. I come to you from this location full of African megafauna to talk about starfish. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, starfish! Uh, So the most amazing story came out of Queen Mary University of London about starfish and oxytocin. So we talk about oxytocin on the show all the time and the various communications that it gives our body. It is the love hormone, the cuddle bug, whatever you want to call it. Um, It's something that spikes when we see animals with very large eyes, makes us feel nurturing, makes us calm, makes us feel loved, all this good stuff, right? Well, turns out um, that starfish, specifically the crown of thorns starfish, um, is also affected by oxytocin. Um, so they, the crown of thorn starfish in particular, feeds on coral and has a really bad impact on the Great Barrier Reef because the Great Barrier Reef has all this other stress going on from ocean acidification, sea level rise, um, sea level temperature change, all this sorts of stuff is is having an impact on these corals. And so extreme predation that might normally be okay is having a pretty large impact on the reef. So in an effort to see what kind of makes this specific starfish tick, they wanted to see how the starfish responded to oxytocin-type molecules. It turns out that they have kind of an important um, role in their digestion. Um, So in this study, they took some starfish and they injected oxytocin into them. And within a few minutes, the starfish did something that I will describe and um, 
before I describe it, let me just say this is a normal starfish behavior. Okay. So they kind of humped up where the center of their body was above all of their legs. And then um, they expelled their stomach out of their mouth. When starfish <laughs> eat, they they go up on top of like a muscle, um, for example. They will use their hydraulic tiny, teeny, tiny suction cup feet to pry open an oyster or a mussel. They're very, very, very strong. Um, when they do that, then they throw up their stomach out of their mouth into the mussel or the oyster. Then they digest the soft tissue of the mussel or oyster outside of their body, in the shell of the oyster or the mussel until it becomes soup-like. You're welcome. Hopefully no one's eating soup right now. Then they can draw it all back up into their body all at once and go on their way and leave just a mussel shell or an oyster shell. So this is how starfish eat. So the oxytocin, when they injected them with oxytocin, they started showing this feeding behavior. They humped up like they were on top of a muscle. They threw up their stomach um, and they just kind of waited there like they were digesting food. Uh, so there's some sort of signal through oxytocin that is telling them um, that there's food around or that it's time to eat. So there's something being triggered there. Um, it also made starfish two to three times slower at writing themselves if you flip them over, which if you flip them over and they were eating a muscle, they might not stop. They might continue to digest that muscle, suck their stomach back in, and then rewrite themselves. So um, this all makes sense with the expectation that oxytocin is a signal that is related to digestion in starfish. Why this is interesting in particular is not just that the, the cues from this hormone are so different in us and in starfish, but that they found receptors all over the starfish's body in their central nervous system and in their stomach. Now, keep in mind, starfish don't have brains. They have kind of this nerve net along their whole body. So they don't have equivalent structures in terms of nervous system necessarily as we have. Um, but this means oxytocin has important um, roles in their body um, and that this is consistent with um, the fact that we have hormone channels for oxytocin in our body, which means that this um, role of oxytocin in general in an animal's body is very, very old. The other thing that's really interesting about this was remember I said at the beginning that the Great Barrier Reef is being impacted by this crown of thorns starfish. So if we know that this could slow down the starfish movement in general, but also confuse them into eating in the wrong place <laughs> or mess with their digestion. Or if you reduce oxytocin, if you inhibit oxytocin, will that stop them from eating? There's all these potential applications to help reduce the predation on the coral reefs. So there's kind of this two-pronged, very interesting approach here. Um, oxytocin channels are very old, um, could be, you know, hundreds of millions of years. Um, when did they change? Yeah. When did they change from being vomit out your stomach to digest stuff to I love you? Oh, yeah, when did, when did oxytocin make that And another question that's probably <laughs> totally unscientific <laughs> and totally unrelated is uh, cute aggression, right? We've talked on the show about how oxytocin actually eat makes babies. you want to eat babies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so is that related or is that totally coincidental? From now on, I'm just going to say, I'm going to vomit my stomach all over that baby. No. This is a reminder of uh, <laughs> is that life itself, <laughs> life itself is very stupid. 
life <laughs> life requires life requires a, a a drug to tell it to eat, to tell it to to reproduce, to tell it to. Love. So remember, you know? remember, remember, the starfish does not have a brain. They have rudimentary eyes and they smell with their feet. Yeah. So but, they hmm. are used to being like food over there. Food closer, food closer on food. But like, so it's yes, it life is stupid if you don't have this multi sensory thought process yeah. of oh that smells like there's shrimp next door. I should walk over and check and see if there's shrimp. Oh, there is shrimp. Does it look like it was cooked well? It does. I'm gonna eat some. Right. So there's there's many steps in between that. And in this case, um, there's some sort of hormone channel that's signaling to them to do this thing that's kind of weird. They throw their stomach up out of their mouth. <laughs> So they probably shouldn't do that if it's not the right time, because then, I don't know, a fish could wander by and bite off part of their stomach and that could affect their survival. So you like don't want them to do that. Yeah. When it's it's like a lap band, but in this case it could be pretty bad. So yes, you're right. You They need to be told when to eat, but also in the ocean, that's kind of an important thing. Well, I was just going to point out, but that, that's not unique. To, that's happens with humans. Yeah. Most humans go, I'm getting hungry. I'm, it's, it's, I'm in love. Whole, I'm hungry. Right. It's, uh, there's uh, all these chemical pizza. signals in the brain telling you to do things, you know, uh, throughout your, not just in the brain, throughout your body, telling you to commanding the, the overorganism to eat, to procreate, to do all this stuff. Without it, we would just, some people just forget. You know, people are busy. People just forget and just starve to death. I mean, there are, there are many work days that I look down and go, it's two thirty. I think. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, being hangry, it could be a lot more than just yeah. low blood sugar. Yeah. Low it's your hormones going. What the heck, man? Feed me. But I, you I, need maybe some I, love. <laughs> Get some food. I think maybe I missed the kernel of the the discovery. Is it? What is the sort of revelatory that by thing? injecting oxytocin into the starfish? they expelled their stomach out of their mouth. Like they were trying to eat something, even though there was nothing to eat there. So there was no known connection between oxytocin and feeding behavior. Right. That's kind of, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Starfish are weird. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, And I will move uh, to close out the animal corner on a late breaking piece of news that Kiki sent me that I love um, that this just in oh wait it's my turn again no so caterpillars this is a study looking at the peppered moth so babies of those caterpillars that can change color in relation to the color of sticks that they are on. Um, There's an extra wrinkle to this. Uh, Researchers took 300 larvae of these peppered moth in the lab. After they grew up a little, the scientists put them in different boxes with different artificial sticks painted black, brown, green, or white. Then they blindfolded some of them. How you ask with black paint? Uh, the blindfolded, <laughs> the blindfolded caterpillars. You know, all for the name of science. These things yeah. happen. Yeah. The blindfolded caterpillars their body color to match the stick they were sitting on, as well as their seeing counterparts did. When they placed the caterpillars in boxes containing different colored sticks, about eighty percent of the larvae equal in both blinded and sighted larvae chose to rest on sticks that match their body color. So in this case, whether they were blindfolded or not, they changed their color appropriately or selected the right stick appropriately. What the heck is going on? Well, um, as far as we can tell, the genes responsible for vision um, are coded not only in their head, but also in their skin. So they have really bad eyesight through their eyes. We already know that. They sit on branches with their heads tilted away. So the eyes are not always on their branch, even when they're not blindfolded. And this, along with the fact that it takes them a while to change color, um, means that they could be sitting targets if they don't move to the right leaf, if they take too long to change, um, or if there's nothing close to their current color. So the 
hypothesis here based on this information is that they evolved a dual sensing mechanism for color to allow them to have um, a, a leg up or in this case, many legs up on the hunters that might be trying to eat them. So they, they are able to sense colors, not only with their eyes, but with their body. Um, this is an assumption we're making based on the genes that were found for vision and the fact that these blindfolded caterpillars could change to their color. That's, That's kind of amazing. That's pretty cool. And I'll just remind you also with it, with starfish that we were just talking about, they can sense light and dark um, with special feet on the tips of their arms. So this huh. is, this is something that other invertebrates can do. They can sense light. There's even vertebrates like um, they're lizards that have a third eye, quote unquote, on the top of their head that can sense light and dark. So if we're talking about light and dark, there are lots of precedents in the animal kingdom for other animals that have uh, vision type sensory structures other than eyeballs. Um, but this is particularly interesting. It is. It takes it to the next step, not just light and dark, but frequency of light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, what would be in the skin? seems like they would see, be able to see that pretty clearly, maybe. What is in the skin that it allows it to be sensitive to light? Who knows? I mean, temperature it, was one thing, but... Yeah. Could, it could be temperature. Sensor. It could just be a wavelength sensor that it, they yeah. might not be seeing color, but they're, they're somehow having some sort of hormonal reaction based on the wavelengths hitting their body. But it really matches the color. Yeah. Of the stick. It, Mm-hmm. It really matches. It's pretty, pretty it incredible. Yeah. I mean, if I'm blindfolded or somebody throws paint in my eyes, I am not going to be able to figure out like what color my the the walls are. Or that's what, why they yeah, don't run experiments on podcasters. Yes, yeah. yes. There's, there's a few ways you could <laughs> test this. So you could take a caterpillar and you could put it in like a lucite box, and you could shoot wavelengths at it. Um, and, right, see and see if, if they, they change colors. You could change the temperature in their space and see if yeah. they change color. Adjust all these different things. Find if there's a hormone release that's happening um, and kind of try to isolate exactly what's going on in their body when they're changing colors and go from there. But um, it's a very exciting first step to kind of see what's going on there. Is it something that's maintained when they metamorphose into mm. moths or butterflies? Wow. We don't know. We don't know. Wow. So many questions. And I think that we need to take it to the break so we can come back after the break and play What the If? <laughs> We're going to do it. I'm so excited. We've had fun reporting on all the stories and talking about them and kind of percolating these ideas a little bit. So we're going to take a quick break and Philip and Matt are going to put their heads together proverbially and uh, (laughs) figure out which stories we are going to uh, paint into our scenarios. What are we going to if? We'll be back after the break. You'll find out when we find out. Stay tuned for more This Week in Science. (laughs) 